as our choir is coming down. We appreciate them greatly. Amen. And the music that connects the mind with the heart so that we worship the Lord. Daniel chapter 4, if you'll make your way there. I'm sure most of you have already recognized this is a long chapter. Some of you are praying, oh, pastor, are you going to preach it all? Not quite. We're going to leave a few verses for next week. But what a glorious display of the power of God and His sovereignty in this text. And then the malignancy of human pride that the Lord will take a scalpel and cut out of Nicodemus' life. And all of us need that this morning, don't we? We sure do. First three verses this morning by way of introduction. And then we'll read 4 through 18 a little later, 19 down through 27, and then 28 through 33. And again, next week we'll pick up at verse 34. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. And because I will not get to this today, would you look at the last verse of chapter 4? So we can bring together the two glorious themes of the unrivaled sovereignty of God and the malignancy of human pride. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. All right. As recorded in the book of Daniel... Our God has clearly displayed His power to a heathen king in a remarkable way. Nebuchadnezzar did not deserve for God to be gracious to him and warn him of his perilous ways at all. But God is merciful and He does this. Really on three, I started to say two previous occasions God has done this, but really it's three. Even in the way that Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and Daniel turned out in chapter 1 was a display of the power of God before Nebuchadnezzar. But for sure in chapter 2 and 3, when Daniel is the one who was able to interpret the king's dream, when no one else could, not only interpret, but give the dream completely and then interpret it. And then, of course, you know the story of chapter 3, this marvelous display of the power of God. So on those occasions, we look at Nebuchadnezzar and we think, wow, spiritual awakening. Surely he got this and surely he is considering spiritual realities. But as Sinclair Ferguson quibs, is it not inconceivable that at this juncture, Nebuchadnezzar would have developed such apparent spiritual Lethargy. He's absolutely, at this point in chapter 4, as you read the story, he's lethargic when it comes 
to the work of God in his life. We have to look at that and say, God, what would have been, what would have been our thinking after we, would, after we saw this kind of display of power from the unrivaled sovereignty of God? What would be our response? But here Nebuchadnezzar is still lethargic, spiritually speaking. Uh, so, God is about to teach old Neb the hard way. That you can be strutting like a king one day, and you can be out in the field eating and living like an animal the next. Now, I would hope that God the Father could get my attention in a much easier way. But pride, the title of the sermon, comes before the fall. We all love to think about the writings of C.S. Lewis. And here in this statement I'm going to give you about pride, he reminds us of the seriousness of it. And let me say, Nebuchadnezzar did not for sure understand the supremacy and the supreme glory of our God and how glorious he is. But at the same time, our God is going to be so incredibly gracious to Nebuchadnezzar. Even to give him a warning at all was the gracious hand of God. So put those things together in your mind. I know that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be put out to pasture. Okay? This seems hard. But I want to remind you that to get the warning at all from God is a gracious act from God. To get a warning at all. And so he receives that. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about the sin of pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, and I love this word, are more flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through the pride, through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. Here's his words at the final part. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. One of my favorite theologians is Jonathan Edwards. And he adds, The heart is so deceitful and unsearchable in nothing in the world as it is to the matter of pride. And there is no sin in the world that men are so confident in, in and so difficultly convinced of. The very nature of it is to work self-confidence and drive away humility. We only need to read the Proverbs to figure out what God thinks about pride. Right? And here's one. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. That's Proverbs 16, 18. God hates pride. Why, folks? Because it challenges the sovereignty of God and His ways. And it puts a mere mortal in the place of the God who rules it all. And when we do that in pride, God absolutely hates it. Did y'all notice something interesting about chapter 4? It's a newsletter from Nebuchadnezzar to the nations. How many of you noticed that? I mean, here's Nebuchadnezzar writing to the nations. Now, folks, that's the interesting thing you see up front is this came from the pen of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, did Daniel help fill in the gaps? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Daniel is helping insert things into this chapter for clarity and understanding. And, of course, it's led by the Holy Spirit of God. But here is a pagan, heathen king that is capitulating to the God of the exiles. It's almost like uh, Ruth. Uh, the Moabite damsel. It's almost like Naomi in, in that book. But here, here you have the unrivaled sovereignty of God. And those are the two themes 
that you need to get in your mind as we read through chapter 4. The unrivaled sovereignty of God. Is this the first time we've seen this theme in the book of Daniel? Why is God going to such great lengths to help us think about the fact that God is sovereign? It's in the book of Daniel, Daniel all the way through. Now keep in mind, you're going to get to the eschatological part in chapter 7. Is God going to be in control of those events too? So Daniel is setting the stage for us, for, for us to understand that even in the apocalypse, the Reve- book of Revelation, that God Almighty is in absolute control. And so he's setting the stage in the thematic structure of the book of Daniel. In all these episodes with Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and Daniel, God is sovereignly teach- he is showing us that he is sovereign over every situation in life. Why do I need to be reminded of that? Because at times we like to take the place of our God. We like to think that we are absolutely in control, but the fact is we are not. So you would think that once we get it once, we've gotten it. But I want to remind you, our mind doesn't work that way. It takes repetition to get the fact that God is in control of all things. Your mind doesn't work that way. And ladies and gentlemen, I can promise you, your heart doesn't work that way. It's a Jacob. It's a heel grabber, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So we need to be reminded of this. Why? Because trials are coming. Troubles are coming. And even the good days are coming. And we often forget that God is in control And so we need to have this repeated. All right, that's the first thing. The second theme is uh, the malignancy of human pride. For all of us, this chapter should be like a surgeon's scalpel that goes into that malignant tumor of pride that infects and affects all of us. So this chapter deals with the overwhelming issues of human pride. How subtle it is. How destructive it is. How it is actually idolatrous. And again, it's a blessing that God Almighty would give a warning to those who are prideful. And that's what he's going to do for Nebuchadnezzar. Again, now the chapter of the story begins at the end. So he says, hey, this is what I've learned. I want to tell all the nations. This is what I've learned about this particular God, the only God that exists. It says here, it seemed appropriate. Uh, for me to give this to you. It is uh, a greeting, and yet it is a lesson concerning our God. Now, can we say from verses 1 through 3 that this looks like full-blown conversion for Nebuchadnezzar? Is he saved? Well, I have no idea, and I don't think you do either. Uh, There's a part of me that says we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in glory. Uh, I don't know that, but the fact of the matter is, It's absolutely remarkable the language that he uses here, right? It's actually almost verbatim Psalm 145, verse 13. It's absolutely astounding the way that Nebuchadnezzar writes this letter to the nations. What is it? He gives it by by proclamation what actually took place for him to come to the place that he is today. When he writes it, we will once again... Uh, have some wise men that are pictured and pitted against Daniel. You ready? Verse 4. Listen to the word of God. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Y'all getting the commentary? This seems like something that's happened to him before, right? That God would speak to a pagan king in a dream at all is, a, is mercy, is grace. 
As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. You know, this is mercy, right? Last time he told those guys, tell me the dream. Cut to the chase. Off with your head if you don't. This time he actually gives them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God. And in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I, shall, that I saw and their interpretation. These visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Unrivaled sovereignty of God, right? In the face of human pride, verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, they're pitted again, right? You got the wise men, the enchanters, the astrologers. These guys can't get the interpretation. Well, could it have possibly been that they may have kind of understood that this wasn't good for old King Neb? However, they feared for their life. I think it, at this point, it's better to be ignorant and alive than knowledgeable and dead. Whatever that might be, uh, here's the case of going on. And of course, Daniel is not present the first time around, but he is present at this picture. But they're pitted against each other. Now, Think about this for a moment. You've got to get in context. Nebuchadnezzar has built a phenomenal kingdom. And they, they have military powers. Yeah, you get that, right? But not only that, Nebuchadnezzar put more stock really in the fact that he was building a kingdom. That his architectural skills and his ability to actually build this kingdom were things that he took great pride in. Two of the seven wonders of the world at this particular time, we're in Babylon. Think about that. 
History says that the walls around Babylon were so wide at the top that you could take four chariots and put them side by side and go down through there and make a U-turn on the wall and come back. That's a massive facility. Nebuchadnezzar married a Medo-Persian woman. When he brought her to Babylon, she missed the mountains. How sweet. And what does he do? In all of his prosperity, he actually makes a seventh wonder of the world because she missed the mountains. And so he began to build uh, hanging gardens that was one of the seventh wonders of the world just to please his wife. Natalie, don't get any ideas. We're not going to do that, right? No matter how, you, we can just drive to Branson, amen? We can see a couple of mountains. But after this, in the understanding of his prosperity, you see it in verses 3 and 4, he begins to have nightmares. And he has a dream, and it is fearful. He, he is fearful. It is alarming to Nebuchadnezzar, this dream. So he gets the, the wise men to come in. Uh, only conjecture of why Daniel was not there at the particular at the first. But Daniel's the president of the wise men at this point, right? And so maybe he's given these guys a shot. One plausible explanation is maybe Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely embarrassed and he is thinking in himself, this is kind of embarrassing that I'm having these dreams again. Uh, maybe he's guilty and he knows, it. of course he is guilty, but uh, how many times has he already been consciously sensitized to the work of Almighty God, and yet maybe he didn't want to ask Daniel to come in. Maybe he's embarrassed. I'm not sure. But Neb is scared out of his mind. And so we know that uh, it was a challenge in chapter 2 for these wise men to do it because they didn't know the dream, but now they know it. They don't want to give it. They're accustomed to giving old Nebuchadnezzar the good things. And so now Nebuchadnezzar is going to point to Daniel. He calls him by his pagan name. Right? There are a couple of episodes in the book of Daniel where uh, uh, Darius calls out, Daniel, your God has delivered you. He didn't lose his identity, right? They knew his name was Daniel, but here he calls him a pagan God. And I would say to you, even when he says that the spirit of the holy gods is in him, notice in the Hebrew it's G, small, and S, gods, I think Nebuchadnezzar himself is still using the idioms of the day. He's still polytheistic. He's not saying the third person of the Trinity lives in Daniel. I think he is just telling us that this is a spiritual guy. There's something different about this Daniel. And that's a blessing, right? You can't make a difference if there's not a difference in you. And so Daniel is peculiar in that particular realm. And so they bring Daniel in. Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is confident, is he not? He's confident at the end of what the section I just read. He's confident Daniel can do the interpretation. So at this point, Daniel gets the content of the dream. Now keep in mind as the dream unfolds that this is an act of mercy from our God to give him the dream and his interpretation at all. So when God warns us, church family, individually, draw a circle around yourself. When God warns you, it's an act of divine mercy. He doesn't have to. God could have allowed Nebuchadnezzar to continue down that path and then simply judged him. And the fact of the matter is, our God would have still been completely God and completely just in doing this. But he sternly and intensely warns him. So Daniel, verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, 
Belteshazzar, let the dream or the interpretation, let not the dream and the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Notice how compassionate Daniel is right before a heathen king. He says, hey, you know what? I I could only wish that this was coming from your haters, right? But in fact, this is coming from the hand of God. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and became strong, become strong and your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens or heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the earth. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree from the Most High God, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know. Here we are, folks. Don't you all wish we could come to this realization without seven periods of being out on the kick to the curb, eating grass? Look, God is merciful. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know. When you know God is on his throne and heaven rules, then I'll give you your kingdom back. Mm. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And now Daniel's going to move from preaching to meddling. Don't you all love it when we do that? Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed or the poor. That there may perhaps be a lengthening. May perhaps, good theology, right? God is able to give you more prosperity, but he might not. So, perhaps the lengthening of your prosperity. So he sees the dream. Strong, tree, high, reach to the heavens. It's proud. It's exalted. It's vast. It's beautiful. It's prosperous. Kind of sounds like the U.S., doesn't it? Hmm. It has nothing to do with the U.S., okay? (laughs) Not literally. However, it does look like our country. Some of you go out of here and say, well, the preacher said Babylon. No, I didn't say that. So, watch what happens. The watchman refers to an angelic being. The holy watchman comes and gives the order, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip it, scatter it. All these things are abrupt, right? Check this out. Lop off the branches. Shake off its leaves. Scatter its fruit, abrupt. Chase the animals out from under its shade. Birds from its branches. So this glorious tree that was highly exalted, incredibly prosperous, is chopped down. Next, isn't this interesting? Leave a stump. Why do we leave a stump? Because we hope and pray that it's going to sprout again. And that's all that's left. And then there's this band of iron and bronze around the stump. Commentators vary on their interpretation. What in the world does this mean? 
Uh, some believe it alludes to some type of preservation of his kingdom, some type of restraint that it would not be completely destroyed forever, or his rule. Some believe that it possibly could symbolize the bondage of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Mm, highly possible. We don't know for sure. Next we see this. Boy, isn't this wonderful? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar looks good at first when that tree is strong and tall and big branches. But listen to this. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Wow. Let his portion be with the beasts in the field. The grass of the earth. There's a swift image of this tree. And the realization that the tree is who? Well, this is given to a person. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar is given to a person. This person is going to have a mental breakdown. And he's going to live like an animal. He's going to have an animal's mind. It's going to last for seven periods. Perhaps seven years. Perhaps a little less. Period doesn't necessarily mean years. Perhaps it's a little less. Now, again, the idea is that the sentence of judgment is going to come upon an individual person. And that person is going to understand the unrivaled sovereignty of God before God would actually give him back his kingdom. Again, I think his polytheism is still intact, but he knows Daniel's special. And Daniel is standing there in the presence of the most powerful human being in the world. And here's a man of God standing there before King Nebuchadnezzar. Do y'all think, I think that Daniel's response is quite striking. I mean, he's appalled by what he sees. I mean, can you imagine what he's going through in his mind? He's, he's interacted with King Nebuchadnezzar. You know he wants him to bow his knee to the king. You know he wants him to, but he's appalled by what he sees. And Nebuchadnezzar says, don't let it alarm you. And Daniel's like, oh, dude, it, it will alarm you too, right? And so this is how this unfolds in his hearing. He's shocked. And he's considering what's in store for the king. And he says, only if this is coming from your enemies. Because Daniel's like, your enemies that are earthly, they can't do anything against you right now because your kingdom's too vast. But God can. And he's got tenderness. And he's before the most powerful tyrant in all the world. So he begins to describe the interpretation. The tree is you. The judgment is against you. The indictment is against you. In verse 24, he tells him that it will come upon him. All of this is going to happen to you until you bow the knee, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the real king of kings. Now, remember this earthly king had the power of life and death in his hands. He could have had Daniel's head chopped off. He could have had him killed immediately. Yet with incredible courage, who does the pastor believe wrote Psalm 119? Daniel. I do, right? I believe that. If I am right, because I don't think David could have written it because of the terminology. If I'm right, then Psalm 119.46 is huge because it says you're going to bear testimony to God's name before kings. And here is Daniel doing just that. He's bearing a testimony before the king who is the most powerful king in the world. You've got to admire this Daniel guy, right? Uh, what courage and conviction. And of course, if we know we're speaking the truth of the word of God, why should we fear God is the very one who gave him what to say. So he says to him, you're going to lose the splendor and majesty. Your sovereignty is going to go away of your kingdom, but God's sovereignty is going to still rule the day. Right? You're going to lose that splendor. And you're going to, 
eventually have to bow to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and realize that He's sovereign over all. And in the meantime, you're going to spend seven periods as an animal. Incredible what the Word says. And when you realize you're just an earthly king, and I put you there, and I can put the lowliest person there. I can put Barney Fife there. Right? I can put ever who I want to put in that position. Until you get that straight, then here's what's going to happen to you. Folks, Nebuchadnezzar didn't deserve for the kingdom to be restored to him. Did he? He didn't deserve it all. You bow the knee, you repent, and when you do, and you understand that I'm the one that puts you there in the first place, then I will give the kingdom back to you. I think God's sovereignty over all things, stick with me church, is the single characteristic about our God that will either evoke one of two things, humility or rebellion. Let's all be honest. Well, that's a hard thing to deal with, that there is a supreme being that controls absolutely all things. As humans, in our nature, we don't like to think about that. But the point of the entire Bible is that there is a sovereign God who governs all things. And guess what? You're not Him. Right? I'm not Him. Our God is enthroned in the heavens, and He governs all things. He determines. He predestines. He decrees, and He controls, and He alone is the King. And that truth will either evoke from you humility or rebellion. You know what your thoughts will be? I thought about this. Here, here's my take on it. You're either going to say this, Oh God, you reign. Did we sing about that today? We're either going to say, Oh God, you reign, and you do with me whatever you see fit to do. Why? Because I am your handiwork. And I thank you, God Almighty, that I'll have a place in your plan period, at all. That I have a place in your plan is simply the work of God. And I don't get to draw the blueprints. God has to do that. On the other hand, you can dig your heels in against the sovereignty of God, and it can evoke within you pride, and you'll say, I will not have this kind of God rule over me. If God knows all things and governs all things, and I'm just, I don't want to know that God. Oh, please don't make that mistake. Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way, right? Pride comes before the fall. So the king, in all his arrogance, has taken credit for all his achievements. Can you see him standing up there with those hanging gardens and just say, check this out, honey, I built this for you. It's all me. I'm awesome, right? I did this. I want to remind you folks that you don't have anything unless God gave it to you. And even in this church, we're reminded in 1 Corinthians that when it comes to spiritual gifts, by, Paul would tell us, if you've received it as a gift, then why do you boast? For it is not your own. I mean, even in this church, whatever gift you have to serve, you need to serve with humility. Why? Because that gift did not come from you. It came sovereignly from God. So Paul reminds them, that's the height of arrogance. To think you're gifted in some kind of way, and then to think... That uh, you did it yourself, it's the height of arrogance. Now watch this, Daniel goes from preaching to meddling, right? Uh, verse 27 is worth reading, why? Because you've forgotten it already. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The NLT says, stop sinning and do what is right. Hey, that's good preaching, First Baptist, Right? New Living Translation, stop sinning and do what is right. Break off your wicked past by being merciful to the poor and oppressed and 
Perhaps there'll be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, does Daniel have courage or what? There was an American preacher who lived many years ago. His name was Samuel Davies. And Samuel Davies was well-known nationally. He wanted to try to get a charter for a well-known school you might know called Princeton. He was trying to get this charter from the King of England. So on one occasion, he was preaching before the King and the Parliament. And the young uh, King and his young bride loved the oratory ability of Davies. They were like, man, this guy's wonderful. He can put these phrases together. He's eloquent, all this kind of stuff. And so Davies is kind of chattering to his young bride, listening. Uh, uh, the king is chattering to his young bride as he's listening to Davies. And you know how you do that sometimes. Oh, this is good. And, you know, punching somebody and talking over vocally where everybody could hear it. He did this throughout the entire sermon. And he was making comments and adding comments after comment. And finally, Samuel Davies, this is back in the day when preachers didn't mind calling you out, right? And so he's preaching along, and finally he just stops and he says, When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field should be silent. And he's looking directly at the king. And then he says, Furthermore, when Yahweh speaks, let the kings of the earth shut their mouths. Y'all think he got invited back? I kind of doubt it, but look, the fact is, this guy, Samuel Davies, had boldness. And here is Daniel, and it's remarkable the boldness that he has, and he won't back down from the message. Not only did he say, hey, the tree is you, all this has happened to you, but I want to furthermore tell you what the Holy Spirit is leading me to tell you sovereignly, divinely, and that's you got to turn from your sin, and you got to do righteous things. So Nebuchadnezzar. There's things in your heart that are not right. You need to repent and turn to God. You need to break off the sins, turn to God. You need to do it by practicing righteousness. You need to bring forth, check this out, folks. This is even good for Baptists. Bring forth repentance that is the fruit of repentance. Fruits of repentance. It won't be enough, Daniel is saying, to say, I'm sorry for what I've done. Daniel says, I need to see your actions flowing forth from your heart. Notice what I said. Actions. Not just verbiage, not just words that I repented, but actually actions flowing from a broken heart. When's the last time God broke your heart in light of His holiness? And what is, you know, many people, we're, we're known by what we weep over. When's the last time you wept over your pride? When's the last time you were broken over it? And of course, when Daniel calls for him to show mercy to the poor, why do you think he does that? Because most commentators actually believe that Daniel, I mean, that the king had actually built his kingdom off the backs of the poor. He oppressed them to get what he had and build his kingdom. And Daniel says, you need to repent. You know, folks, repentance is never just a general statement of feeling bad about your sins. Boy, I feel bad about them, especially when I get caught. And don't you? Repentance is owning your sins and identifying your sins and breaking those sins off and bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice the terminology. It's a change on the inside that's demonstrated on the outside. That's what true repentance is. And finally, Daniel wants to give the king one more time a reminder of who's in charge. Right? Until you bow the knee. God is in control. You're not in charge. God is. At this point, did y'all see this? Old Nebuchadnezzar raises his hand, he signs a card, and he walks down for the invitation. That's what we do in Baptist life, right? 
Oh, man, we've given the gospel. We told you what to do. Now let's come down and sign a card. You join the church without ever repenting. Folks, that happens in the church more than you think it does. Just because you feel sorry, just because you feel emotional and guilty, doesn't mean there's a change of heart. A change of heart is that you will repent and you will live that repentance and there will be fruits coming out of that repentance from a heart that is broken over your sin. That's what happens in your life. And of course, if we were in the New Testament, we would say, and follow Jesus. Correct? So, quickly. What time is it? Very quickly. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace. Hey folks, 12 months has gone by. Did you know that the enemy can use time to lull you into spiritual lethargy so that you forget about what's going on? Times are good. We're, we're good, right? Fear is gone. Dream is gone. Uh, I'm not afraid anymore. Life is great. He's looking out of his royal palace, and the king answered and said, Is it not this great Babylon which I have built by my power, mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Whoa, Katie, y'all know this is not good, right? While the words were still in the king's mouth, folks, he didn't even get it out of his mouth. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has been departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Wow. He sees this whole issue of his prosperity, and God is being good to him. He is... He's given him 12 months to repent. Maybe God will prolong your prosperity, but that's not the case. He's lulled again into spiritual apathy. There's been no change of heart. And so he's looking at this monument to himself. Life goes back to normal. And God has brought now the warning to his front door. He does. God has brought it there. This is so relevant for us us this morning, is it not? Because week after week... Month after month, in fact, year after year, God uses His Word to speak to you, to drive that point home in your life. He convicts you of it, and then life goes back to normal. We know this, don't we? When life goes back to normal, what do we do? We don't sense the urgency, and it's gone. It's no big deal, right? Listen, folks, we're about to land the plane. We hear the warning. Times go well for a while. All of you are guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. God speaks to you. You know His Word is speaking directly to you, your heart and your life, and you ignore it. And God is driving it home over and over and over again. You know what God is calling you to do, and He's putting His finger on that issue. Something in your life is not right. He's doing it over and over again. Each time He pokes a little harder and a little harder. And eventually, it goes in one ear and out the other. And weeks go by and months go by and years go by and we just forget. Here's the lesson. Stop trifling with God. And that's what we're doing. Do y'all see how powerful he is in this chapter? Last time I checked, this is the same God who rules the world today. Right? we got to stop trifling with God. You can't live like that and expect to get away with it. There's something called the law of the harvest. Whatsoever a man sows, 
that shall he also reap. When God the Spirit puts his finger on an area of your life and he identifies what that is, God expects you to repent and he expects you to have a response that brings forth the fruit of repentance in your life. He expects this. If you ignore the word of God, Proverbs 13, 13 says, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it. Hear that again. The one who despises the word of God will be in debt to it. Meaning, what the word has said to you, you ignored it. The word is still the word and you're in debt to it. It's going to come to fruition. Okay? Again, times of false peace. It's nothing more than the tool of the enemy to lull all of us to sleep. Some of you are thinking, please get done, preacher. I might come back next week. Why? Because it's burning in your heart. You know there's an area. You know there's a situation. You know there's a circumstance. You know full well that God has put His finger directly on that place. Don't be in debt to the Word. Obey it. Bow the knee. Bow the heart. Right? Are you ignoring the Word of God? Listen, how many times does He have to come to old King Neb and show His power? Show that His track record is absolutely perfect. Everything I've said so far has come to fruition, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this one is too. While you're out the pasture. Right now. Men and women, there are things that we entertain too often that are damaging to our marriages. You better not ignore what the Word of God has to say to you. It's quiet in here now. You better not ignore, thus saith the Lord, when it comes to your marriages. You know who you are. We could all be guilty of this at times. And there are things we entertain, there are things we watch, there are things that we look at that are damaging to your marriage. And God Almighty says morally, ethically, biblically, that's wrong. And we just turn a deaf ear to it. Some of us have moral issues that the Holy Spirit of God has hammered us on time and time and time again. And you know how it works? It worked, it worked on me even last night. It's kind of like a traffic violation. I didn't get one, but I could have, Right? I'm driving down the road, and if it says 65, you run 66. Technically speaking, you could get a traffic violation. Now, we like to say if, it's, if you're not over 10, you're good, right? We like to drive that way. But we look in the rearview mirror, and we see that cop back there, and we're like, ooh, is he coming? And boy, when he don't come quickly, we're like, I'm good. And we might give a, an occasional glance back into the mirror and make sure that he didn't just decide that he's going to get you, right? It's like that traffic violation. But God Almighty warns us because, he doesn't, because we're not doing something right. And we began to look in that rearview mirror. And we think, ooh, made it this time. Nebuchadnezzar went for 12 months, folks. God don't have a short memory. He went 12 months. First time old King Nebuchadnezzar looked in that rearview mirror, he did it, well, the first sets of times, he did it constantly. <laughs> like we would do if we see the blue light, right? He's constantly looking. Then it becomes a simple glance to see what's going on. No lights, no foul, no harm. Again, God doesn't have a short memory. He gets up on this day like any other day. He's strutting around. Wow, I'm awesome. This is what I've made. It's my might and my glory. Boy, isn't the word of God so strong here? Before it even came out of his mouth, before he ever finished thinking or saying it with his lips, judgment came verbatim. Doesn't it remind you of Acts 12 with King Herod, Antipas? God sovereignly removed him from his office. Verbatim. You will become externally what I have made you internally. Now you know this is called lycanthropy. His illness. You can read about it. 
Uh, it is actually an, an antiquity. It is a mental illness where you actually become like a cow or a wolf or a dog. And that's the way you're thinking in your mind. Lycanthropy. And that's exactly what God gives him. But make no mistakes about it. It's a mental delusion. But God gave it to him. Are y'all listening? It's not just a king in a story where the king lost his mind. God calls him into lycanthropy. God did this. It was the judgment of God. And for seven periods he lived out under the judgment of God. Today, it's pretty simple. Let us all live under the reality that there is a pride that slips into us that is absolutely imperceptible to us, but it's easily seen by others. Here's what you're guilty of. Don't look at me so spiritual. Look at me. Everybody in this room has a spiritual radar for pride. And when you see it, you're like, that guy is so prideful. That radar don't work on you. You don't perceive it. Others can see it. We got that radar. Woo, he's, man, I just can't, can't stomach that dude. So prideful. And then when pride is inside of you, that same radar, don't, don't, you don't catch it. You don't catch it. Folks, listen. Please remember that there's a God who reigns in heaven and you're not him. Remember that. You're not even close. Would all of us this morning bow our knee to a sovereign God who controls all things? And humble ourselves before him and not have a proud heart. At the end of the day, pride is an idolatrous display of blasphemy and self-exaltation. May God help all of us. May God help all of us. Folks, I want to remind you that you can't even be saved unless you bow and take away your pride. Why? Because you've got to become as a child. That doesn't mean you become a baby. That's the intent of your heart. It's absolutely trusting. And you can't trust without submitting. And you can't submit without swallowing pride. Wow, just think about the cross. And then you have to swallow some pride, right? Think about what Jesus did for you. Think about the cross of Christ. He took a death that, you, that he didn't deserve, and he did it on behalf of you. So that your sins could be nailed to the tree of Calvary, as it says in Colossians. Well, that's a blessing, isn't it? Remember, uh, those who are proud will be taken down. Those who are humble shall be exalted. Daniel's a good example of that, is he not? All right, let's pray. Great God, we thank you for your word. And Father, we love you. And Lord, this is a stunning reminder to all of us that pride can absolutely destroy us. It can destroy marriages. It can destroy our walk with you. God, help us know that we're nothing without you, Jesus. You said it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, at the same side, we see that uh, the hairs on our head are numbered. That you know all things. That you're sovereign. Nothing ever catches you by surprise. In Psalm 121, we remind us that you never slumber nor sleep. Lord, help us all to bow before you. It's not the uh, passage that most preachers are we're going to flip through and say, Hey, I'm going to preach on pride today. I'm going to talk about Nebuchadnezzar going out to the pasture like a wild animal. But God, this is your holy word and you've asked us to preach it uncompromisingly. To preach it expositionally. In such a way that we reveal what the text says. It can never mean what it never meant. And what it meant then was that you rule the world. And you will not stomach in no way human pride. God, thank you that you've been merciful to people in this church today. Why? Because if they came, they heard your word. And they got one last warning. That they need to let their pride go to the side. And they need to obey the king who has unrivaled sovereignty. You control us all, Lord God. You control all things, and may we bow before you today.
And Father, that's the key, even in salvation, to acknowledge the need that we're sinners. To acknowledge that need, to believe that only Jesus can save us. That there's salvation in no other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. We confess that to you and know that. And we repent and turn from our sin and trust Jesus only for salvation. Thus you give us a righteousness that is apart from us. A righteousness wherein when you look at us, you see your perfect son who obeyed the law perfectly. Who gave us a righteousness not of our own because Jesus Christ is righteous. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.